0: Hey folks, Jonathan here. Before I jump into the episode, I wanted to let you know that the audio is a little rough, but Aaron, the guest, shared a ton of valuable insights, so I wanted to release it anyway. I have included an auto-generated transcript for this episode if you prefer to read it. It's not perfect, I used Descript to create it, but it's pretty good. Anyway, just wanted to let you know. Hello and welcome to Ditching Hourly, I'm Jonathan Stark. And today i'm joined by guest aaron balsa aaron welcome to the show
1: thanks for having me i'm excited to be here
0: before we get started could you tell people a little bit about who you are and what you do
1: of course so i run house of bold and i am a marketing advisor and a writer working with software companies that sell software to other companies and i said that as you know Simply as I can, but essentially how I, how I typically pitch my services is I help B2B SaaS companies build high-performing content engines in 6 to 12 months. And I do that through a combination of strategy, advising, and content creation. Cool.
0: Good. That's pretty tight. I like it.
1: <laughs> Thanks.
0: So uh, a fellow on my list, thank you, Mark, uh, sent in, I guess is also on your list, and noticed that uh, you were you were raving about or sharing the five-page proposal template that I have on my site. So I just wanted to see what your experience was with that. See what you know if you've shared it with anyone who has also had success with it. But um, yeah, I just wanted to uh, get your take on it.
1: I freaking love it. You know, <laughs> I have been I've been freelancing on and off for over a decade. And I only recently started using this. I, you know, I quit my day job as a marketing director at a software company back in January of 2022. And I was using just a typical traditional template. Uh, I'm pretty lucky in that all of my opportunities come inbound. I'm very active creating content on LinkedIn. I, you know, I have a podcast. I have been on lots of podcasts and I've spoken at conferences, so I'm very, very fortunate that I have the benefit of only sending proposals to people who reached out to me. So there was already some sort of basic level of, you know, familiarity and interest. Mm -hmm. Even still, um, you know, my success rate in terms of getting people to accept the old traditional proposal was hit or miss. Um, So, and I think a lot of that is I do Bill on the higher end of the spectrum for people who do what I do. I am definitely more of a premium option. And some people, you know, they might have listened to my podcast, read my newsletter, you know, whatever it is, but still they might not be 100% understanding the value in a really intricate way. So I started using your proposal and it's been kind of wild the success rate in terms of accepted proposals. And so I actually wrote down some data points to share with your listeners. Oh, cool. So since I switched to your template, I've increased my close rate to hundred percent. So if I (laughs) send a template, everybody signs on the dotted line and moves forward, which is amazing. Mm -hmm. Um, I've increased my average deal size from 30 K to 44 K, which is great. Um, and I have doubled the number of clients who are willing to pay in full upfront. So I'm not getting hundred percent to say sure, because you know, every company is different, but some are like, yeah, sure. I'll just pay you now for this, this project or this retainer. So it's been really great.
0: Killer. Yeah. Those are like the, the three big things, right? It's like in- improve your close rate, justify higher fees and get paid upfront.
1: Yeah, it's been wonderful. Yeah,
0: and as you probably know, it, in case the listener doesn't know, I'll say, the, the asking for 100% upfront is uh, its the sneakiest thing I do on the proposal because I know I'm probably, well, I don't know. I, I know there's a likelihood that, that I'm going to negotiate, need to negotiate something, and that's the thing I want to negotiate. So it's sort of a red herring in a sense because I'm willing to negotiate that in lieu of negotiating the price, which I absolutely never, ever, ever negotiate. So it gives me something to compromise on if the client is, you know, wants to talk about something, but, you know, negotiate something. But like you said, you just said, it's sho- it's shocking at first how many people are just like, okay, here you go, that's fine.
1: Totally shocking. And, you know, I think one thing that helps a lot, well, there's two things that help a lot with this proposal, compared to a traditional proposal. One is, the section right at the front where you quickly summarize like what you've discussed, and then you also trickle that down into each of the three options, right? So option one is the most affordable option, but even still, all the benefits are clearly outlined as they pertain to the, I've heard you kind of intro paragraph. I, have been doing about three paragraphs, nothing too crazy, just kind of like the, the biggest pain points that I'm hearing in our discovery call. And then I'm summarizing it in three paragraphs and then I'm giving three different options and under the options using the benefits. So that makes them feel really heard. Like, okay, so she actually did hear, she gets it. And, you know, there's also a little section where it's like, why House of Bold? Why Erin Balsa? And, you know, a lot of these people, they know me, but at the same time, they might not know like everything that I've accomplished. So I put kind of my biggest achievements, like why me? Well, because I've done A, B, C, D, E and it's all spelled out right in one place. And it kind of motivates them to just take a chance on me, I think. Um, and then what's interesting too, as I, I believe from listening to your, your podcast over the years, Jonathan, I've heard that, you know, you're supposed to kind of ground the, the proposal in the middle, and then you have an option that's like, eh, cheaper. And then you have one that's kind of a stretch to make, you know, the the middle proposal seem much more reasonable. I've found that I was going in with that, but so far people have been choosing the most expensive option as well. So say I'm coming in like thinking, oh, 30K is gonna be good. It's like, oh I'll go for 50 or or whatnot. So that's been great too.
0: Yeah, that that's if in general, when people are picking your third option, it means you could have priced your third option a lot higher and your middle option higher too. So if if people are always accepting your third option if you're using the goldilocks pricing curve where where i typically map it out to be like 1 2.2x and 5x so really a significant increase on the third option and people are picking it like a lot then it it's a sign that you've got you're leaving either leaving money on the table or or they believe that you can create more value than than uh, or they value what you're going to do higher than than you did
1: yeah 100%, I'm sure I will be you know, taking this as a learning in into my pricing going forward as I adjust my prices for you know 2023 and beyond.
0: Cool, there's also, I should also mention, there's another pricing curve that's pretty common that I call might as well pricing, where you do wanna drive the person to the third option, you wanna drive the buyer to the third option, and you do that by decreasing the delta between the options. So if anybody is in a position where they're not getting tons of inbound leads like Aaron, then and, and you really need this deal or whatever the whatever the opportunity is on your plate you can use might as well pricing that's more like you know 1x 1.5x 1.75x so that as they as they look at the prices they're like well if i'm gonna get any of these i might as well get the second you know if i'm gonna get the first one i might as well get the second one it's not that much more and then geez if i'm gonna get the second one i might as well buy the third one because it's not it's even less more so you know, if, you, if you're in a scenario where you really want to land the deal for whatever reason, maybe they're a marquee client or whatever, you, you just need the cash flow, then it would be normal for them to be going to option three with that pricing curve. But with Goldilocks, the the option three should be like, like uh, yikes, we can't, that's way out of the ballpark. You know, so for, for example, if someone, uh, if someone came to me and said, oh, which... You know, if I was working with a private coaching student, they're like, ah, they, they gave me the budget. Like, they told me what the budget was. Like, how, you know, that's their, and, and it's a lot. Should I keep, where, sh- where, sh- how should I use that information? And depending on the specifics of the situation, I would almost always have at least one of the options above what they said their budget was. So, you know, perhaps option two is around the area of the budget, but option three I would definitely have above the budget because the budget might be based on a misapprehension around what the correct solution is, or perhaps their understanding of the value has increased based on the conversation that they had with you. So it could be, in other words, it could be that the budget was set incorrectly or based on faulty, uh, faulty premise. And so if the premise changes, of course, the budget can change. Um, so yeah, anyway, so yeah, I would usually swing for the fence with that, that option three and, Yeah. And if you're consistently getting people picking three, then what that means is like your, your marketing is really working and the people are seeing a lot more value than, than you're capturing. So it's a great, you know, it's a good sign that you could probably increase those.
1: Yeah, you're absolutely right. And I'm glad you made that final point about testing, even with someone tells you their budget. I have a, my, you know, favorite long-term client, which I love so much. They told me what their budget was for next year. And so, you know, I, I, jotted down everything I'd like to do for them next year at that budget. And I made that option one. And then I went up an extra 40 K and I'm like, Hey, here's what I think that you should be spending because we've been together so long. We also have that level of trust right. where, you know, I really think that an extra 40 K could get you outsized results. And so i I pitched it, I sent it over and we're going to chat today and we'll see how it goes. I can report back and let you know.
0: Well, fingers crossed. Yeah. So let's jump back to the situation appraisal. So you mentioned that that sort of three paragraph summary at the beginning of the proposal and to me, to me, that is the heart of the proposal. I mean, obviously, you need to have options and prices and so forth. But to me, the situation appraisal is what clinches the deal. How do you get the information that you need to, to put into that section?
1: So my process is the leads come inbound either through my website. So right on my homepage, I have a contact form and the contact form forces people to answer a few questions. And I can pretty much tell right from there if it's even like worth doing a discovery call or people will message me direct through uh, LinkedIn. I get a lot of LinkedIn messages at which time I'll kind of guide people to answer those questions. And if it seems like, you know, It's a a legitimate fit, like the company was is within my ICP and within the kind of niche that I specialize in, I'll look up, you know, the company's revenue. I'll look up to see what size their content team is, if they have one or not, things like that. So by the time I'm booking a discovery call, I've already kind of done my legwork. I'm not just hopping on calls with anyone who wants to hop on calls. That helps too, in terms of you know having a, a high close rate after sending the proposal. So out of all the inbound, I guess leads—I hate the word leads—out of all the inbound handraisers that I get, people who are interested in my services, I probably have a discovery call with maybe like one out of ten. So it's not that many, um, but you know, like I said, I've been doing this so long, I know the kind of client that's the best fit for me and that I enjoy the most. So once I get on a discovery call, I always book 15 minutes. I, I use Calendly so that, you know, I'll say, hey, here's this link. You can book time with me. And I hop on and I, you know, I've been doing this now again, long enough that I'm comfortably able to discuss my services and how i've helped in the past and so it's a you know mostly a listening session and i do take notes i don't record it i don't want to make anyone feel uncomfortable at that stage but i do take some notes the most burning problems that i'm hearing and you know i pay attention to their cues you know their facial expressions their intonation of their voice uh, body language when i'm saying things to them i'm picking up on their cues visually. I do this as a a video Zoom call and I'm writing things down like, oh yeah, I can tell that they really reacted to that or, oh, their eyebrows popped up when I said that I've done this for others like them. And I'm going to be sure that those kind of key moments are reflected back to them in the proposal.
0: Killer. That's fast. 15 minutes is, is really It never
1: quick. goes 15 minutes. It's always like 30. But okay. I do try to book 15 to kind of set the expectation. You know, okay, like, hey, here's 15 minutes. Right. I don't know that I've ever gone off, gotten off the phone in 15 minutes. Right.
0: Okay, that makes sense. And I do like the and, – and it's sort of like, oh, I, I know we're going over, but um, – Yeah. So who – you know, in your ideal customer profile, who is the person on the other end of the line there? Is it the founder? Is it the CMO? Do they not have a CMO? Is that usually a bad sign if they have a CMO for, you know, for you? who Who do you need to be talking to, right?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. I'm talking to typically the head of marketing, and that might be a CMO. It might be a VP of marketing, um, some companies might have a few different kind of marketing leaders at this point it's kind of like the upper end of my range so I might be talking to a VP of product marketing that's a you know person that brings me on a lot because a lot of companies that I work with the content function rolls up to the product marketing team uh, sometimes the product function might roll up to the demand gen team I might be talking to a VP of demand gen um, but sometimes it's a Cmo I don't work with companies that don't have, at least a head of marketing in place. Um, and I tend to work with companies that do not have a content team or a head of content.
0: Got it. So that's that's a gap you're filling, but they've demonstrated based exactly. on hiring that they are super interested in marketing. Like they've got, they've got someone in a leadership position yes. that's responsible for marketing. So they are indicating that it's important to them, but they just haven't got a team built up or they might not have a team built up to execute against that.
1: Yeah, they might have, you know, five people on the marketing team, but no content team. So what they've been doing, it's uh, so like I said, it's a very specific problem. The people that are like, really like, yes, we need you. They have a marketing team. They have product marketing demand gen. They're doing all of these things but they're outsourcing all of their content to an agency or freelancers, but they don't have anyone to kind of own that. It's kind of dropped on the lap of someone who's extremely busy doing product marketing or someone who's extremely busy, you know, placing paid ads and managing those relationships with those vendors. And now they're stuck trying to think of topics for content and trying to act like an editor when they're not, or trying to uphold, you know, the brand standards in the content. And that's really stressful for someone who's doing that kind of on top of their other jobs. So there's a lot of pain, a lot of urgency to kind of get this outsourced to someone who can do exactly what I do, which is helping them build a team and helping kind of be that steward of, yes, this is the right content for us. This is strategic. This is high quality. And that's just a really big relief for people to kind of have that missing piece filled.
0: Mm, okay. And there's something implied in what you're saying that I want to call out, which is that this is the, your ideal client is convinced that content is a solution to some problem they have. Oh, yes. You're not coming in saying, you know what you need, content Never. marketing.
1: Nope. I don't convince anybody.
0: <laughs> Perfect. That's awesome. Okay. You, another thing you, you made uh, note of, or, or I made note of earlier that you mentioned was um, benefits in the options. So in the proposal, uh, you would describe benefits. Can you and this is widely misunderstood by people when they first see the proposal, they almost every time I review a proposal, it is heavy on deliverables, light on benefits. So mm. can, you, can you describe to you what, what are the kinds of benefits that you would include in these different options?
1: Yeah. So I guess I need to you know, tell you and your listeners that I help in four specific areas And the benefits pertain to to those. So the first area I help in is I help them hire either full time or freelance writing talent. It's extremely hard to find good writers. Uh, A lot of these marketers, they're senior marketers. They have been burnt so many times by making bad hires, hiring shitty agencies. And, you know, there's just a lot of concern there because they know how stressful it is when they have some crappy content and now they're stuck dealing with the problem, especially if it's a bad full-time hire. So, you know, my benefit there is really clear, peace of mind that your hire is going to be an excellent fit for the job, the culture, the team, because I come from a background where I worked for three and a half years at a company called the Predictive Index. And we have a, you know, a hiring tool that helps people assess candidates based on different factors, you know, Behavioral fit with the job, the team, the company culture. Um, you know, we're even like testing on cognitive uh, ability for the job, making sure that somebody can learn at the appropriate speed so that they can success successfully do the job. So I bring also not only just someone who knows what it you know takes to hire a good writer i also bring that background of understanding behavioral drives and understanding how all the different pieces kind of fit together so i you know put that into the why me section so it's kind of like a story i'm a storyteller right so the proposal allows me to tell my story and let the story unfold as they read right from the problem to the benefits to you know the why me section it's all like a little story Um, You know, then as another example, and one of the other things that I do for people is I build content strategies and editorial calendars based off that strategy. So they have a roadmap. A huge pain point that I hear again and again is, you know, it feels like we're doing random acts of marketing. (laughs) This is so stressful. Like we're so busy, we're on the hamster reel and like we're not getting the results. So that is something that I work in with the benefit. I literally repeat back my, clients and my prospects words to them. So the benefit is once you have a content strategy, you're doing less random acts of marketing. And then why me? Of course, the story unfolds again in the why me? Well, you know, in my last job, I increased organic hand raisers by, you know, a hundred and I forget what it was in one year, 105% by creating this great content strategy.
0: Killer. And yeah. And you, you totally, mentioned my favorite thing, which is numbers. You actually, right. It's like you're talking about peace of mind, uh, at, you know, in in one level and the person you're talking to knows full well what that's worth to them. Even though, you know, a lot of people listening will be like, Oh, that's just BS or that's not real, or that's too intangible for me to sell. Or I, I don't sell peace of mind. Like nothing I do is going to result in peace of mind, but it's, it's absolutely real and you can almost you can reliably uncover it if you're talking to the right person they're worried about something or they wouldn't be talking to an expert like there's something there there's some expensive problem or some big opportunity or some just something that they're up nights worried about or thinking about and they're talking to you because they believe that you can contribute something to to either make that opportunity come true or make the expensive problem go away.
1: Yeah, I would say that anyone who thinks they don't sell peace of mind, rethink that. Yeah. If you have, you know, ever talked to a business leader, we're all stressed, stressed AF. I don't know. I don't want to say the F <laughs> word. I don't know if that's allowed, but you know, I I've been a marketing leader. I know what it feels like to hire shitty people. I know what it feels like to be feeling like you're running in a million directions and you're on the hamster wheel. Like all the things that I'm hearing are things that I felt myself. So it's kind of easy for me. I'm kind of lucky that I'm selling to people where I used to kind of wear those same shoes and it can be more difficult for someone. Like I know you have a lot of uh, software developers and it might be more difficult for them to, to understand if they haven't led a team of software developers, but if they had, they would probably know that they, definitely do provide peace of mind. And exactly. I think that's an important thing to kind of, you know, use the data and use the emotions. Mm-hmm.
0: What other kinds of results? Um, you, you mentioned you increased the number of hand raisers. I like that by 105%. What other kinds of results do you feel comfortable including in a proposal?
1: Oh, gosh. Um, so one thing that was really big that's important to the kind of clients I work with as well is that when I was at my last job, I, I worked with the leadership team to create uh, this new kind of discipline Um, with the goal of creating market category. And we launched this discipline slash category, and this helped us secure a 50 million series A funding round. So I always use that um, because Mm -hmm. being able to communicate clearly is so important. And I was able to to help this executive team, you know, jot down and think through and reorganize our thoughts so that we had this really great, uh, you know, content piece to kind of, serve as the backbone for, for their pitch deck. And I like to use that, you know, I wasn't in the room pitching. I didn't make the pitch deck. I wasn't in the, you know, the C-suite uh, but I, I did work on that for three months to have this, this done. So I always lead with that. That's a big one. People care a lot about funding in, in my world. And then of course the hand raisers is everything. Anybody can get a blog post to rank. Anybody can, you know, gate an ebook and get leads and hand those leads over to the sales team but the thing is, you know, not everybody can drive inbound hand raisers. like, hey, I read your stuff. I've been reading your content for the last six months. I've come to your webinar. I've, you know, taken this interactive course that you built on your website. I would love to get a demo. Do you know the difference between the close rate between a typical traditional gated content lead and a handraiser that requested a demo? At my last job, the difference was... I think the close rate was like a forty percent difference. So imagine if I can send over, you know, say in one year I used to send over five hundred of those. In year two, I'm sending over a thousand of those. And say our average deal size is twenty five k. That's a huge difference in revenue. And people know that. So I don't even always have to like spell out every single number because I typically work with clients where. Their, their software might range between, you know, 25K for an annual subscription up to 250,000 a year. So, you know, hey, I doubled the organic hand raisers at this big company whose annual revenue is 80 million a year. You can kind of do the math in your head right. and, and figure it out.
0: So what is a, if someone came to you, one of these LinkedIn inbound hand raisers coming to you, what's too small of a fish? What's too big of a fish?
1: Uh, my project minimum is 15k. Um, okay. So anyone who you know can't at least spend 15k for a project would be too small of a fish. And then in terms of like company revenue, anything between be- below like 10 to 15 million a year typically starts to struggle at that point. Like they're like, ooh, 15 thousand, that's a lot. You know, we're hoping to spend whatever five thousand dollars. And what I've learned, um, I wasn't always that way. So I've I've worked with all different companies. And what I've learned was the small fish tend to give you the biggest headaches. And they're such penny pinchers (laughs) because that $10,000 to them is like, oh my God, that's like 25% of my, my budget for the year. Like this has to go amazing and it's going to go amazing, but not if you're like down my throat and like checking every five seconds and too many cooks in the kitchen, we all want to, you know, change this word and change that. And that's not how it works. Like, so I tend to do better with people who it's like 15K. Yeah, that's, that's great. It's reasonable. Or, you know, 40K. Yep. yep, that makes a lot of sense. Like it's only a, a fraction of our our marketing budget. So that's kind of how I've I've figured it out over, over time.
0: Perfect. And then what about the high end? Have you ever had a situation where someone comes to you and you're just like, nah, I don't want to get involved with this? It's like yeah. either too much risk or too much red tape or something like that. What, what would be the high end?
1: Yeah, it's not risk; it's red tape. It's exactly what it is, and that typically is when a client gets above like 150 million a year in ARR, annual recurring revenue, and that's because their team grows too big and they start to move from kind of that place that I love, which is building processes and systems where there are none, to you know refining those processes and systems, and that where you start to to see things kind of slow down. They get more formal. There's more cooks in the kitchen. I can't get things done as quickly as I would like to. So that is kind of where I I get less interested. And that's also where I provide less value because at that point, they're almost at the place where they're going to either have or almost have a head of content, someone who's strategic, someone who can build the plan. They don't need me. Um, I'm not going to be that right fit for someone who has a strategic content lead in-house and they just need someone to kind of execute and write blog posts. That's great. There's a huge need for that. That's just not my happy place. So I uh, tend to not work with companies that are already there.
0: Got it. Perfect. Yeah. So tell, tell me about this list who, um, that you shared uh, the template on so I was very excited to hear that and I'm curious what sort of people are Are on that list and do you think that? Any of them wouldn't be a good fit for this kind of a proposal Like, or you know what I mean? Like is it is it universally? Amazing and everyone should use it or are there people you think in your audience that either are too big or too small for this kind of an approach
1: That's a great question um, so who's on my list. It really runs the gamut from someone who's just starting out as a content writer. So they're probably just learning about how to optimize blog posts to get them to rank. So I do have some people that are super early on and they just follow me on LinkedIn and they subscribe to my newsletter. So at that point, it might be difficult for them to use this proposal because I would think that the people that they're going to be a fit for are either going to be super small fish. So they're just like, Hey, I don't know. Like we have this list of topics, go create stuff. And they just don't understand marketing. Like they're probably a founder led small business. They might not have a experienced head of marketing. So, you know, if you're like, Oh, I can do a B and C, it's going to all look the same to them. They're not truly going to understand the value. I don't think yet because they haven't walked in those shoes of a marketing leader quite yet, I would argue, and I would say their budget is going to be their budget. It's like, hey, I'm a small business. Uh, I don't have any marketers in house. I just need you to write these blog posts and my budget is $500 you know, a month and that's it. So there's no wiggle room. So that could be a problem with those um, that subset of people. And then on the other hand, um, if you are working with really huge companies, like I work with one really huge company, that's outside of my ICP. It's just nice work, nice people. I like the company and I do a little bit of work for them um, every quarter, but I don't use that proposal for them because they have a very well- working machine you know they're like a publicly traded company so they just need help with these very specific things and i'm i couldn't be like oh let me upsell you with strategy they don't need strategy oh let me upsell you with this like they don't need that if they have a specific need they'll come to me with the problem and then i'll be able to potentially give an option or two but i wouldn't like lead with that because they're too big so i would say anything in the middle would be like amazing for this proposal so someone that has if you're a marketer, at least like in my world, if you're on the list and you're working with a company with a marketer, do it. If you're working with a company that, you know, has not yet IPO'd, do it. And then there's like those two extremes. That's nice. in my opinion. That's, you know, just speaking off the top of my head, I honestly haven't put much thought into this answer.
0: Right. Yeah. I think you're, I think you're right um, that the, for me, there's a, there's a certain point where someone who is. Kind of thought of themselves as a freelancer. They're definitely billing by the hour, and they're they they get to a point where maybe there's a little more gray in the hair, and they're like, "Huh, these whippersnappers are undercutting me and landing the jobs, and you know my experience is not really a meaningful differentiator anymore." And it's a little bit of a I, there's a marketing problem there, which I actually want to get to in a second. But but once you're at the point where you you know what you're doing. And you can reliably deliver results to the kinds of clients that you really want to work with. To me, that's the, that's the point where you're leaving tons of money on the table by not switching to this proposal model. If you're brand new and you don't know what you're doing, you can still use it. The, the, the question in my mind in those situations is whether or not you're actually going to increase your fees. because if you Because a lot of clients do like a fixed fee, which this is. And if they, if they, uh, but if you're new and you aren't, you aren't attracting a lot of leads, and you're not really comfortable talking the language of business, which is numbers. You don't have the mindset of uh, a leader yet, uh, because you're still you haven't led anybody, so you don't really have that mindset yet. You could use this format. I just don't know that it would, you know, at least it'll get you off the the hourly hamster wheel, and you won't have to keep timesheets. But the idea that it would increase your rates. Is a little bit unlikely when you're just starting out, um, but yeah. So anyway, if you if you really know what you're doing, you've been doing it for five or ten years, and you feel like you're not getting paid what you're worth, then hello, this is this that might be the time to check it out.
1: One other thing that I've noticed too about you know how when I started I used to do proposals compared to now, and which is a nice feature of your proposal template there's nowhere where you're putting in like line items. So for example, let's say, you know, I think a a mistake that a lot of newer people make, I know I did, is kind of itemizing everything. So you're like trying to show, oh, I'm going to do all these things for you. Look at me, I'm going to work so hard. It's not just going to be an ebook. I'm going to do research. I'm going to do competitive research. I'm going to talk to your customers. I'm going to blah, blah, blah. And you're like writing it down. And almost like equating a value to it. So hey, I'm going to charge you five thousand dollars for this ebook, but you need to know that you know it's one thousand dollars worth of research and one thousand dollars. Like, don't do that. That is like the fastest ticket to somebody, some cheapo saying, "Oh, like this sounds great, but can you just remove the research piece?" And that's actually <laughs> happened to me. I had someone back when I was not vetting people as well as I do today to get on discovery calls. And I did not know what I know now about proposal writing. I wrote, you know, this nice proposal for this project, uh, and the guy literally said, "Yeah, I want to move forward, but can you take off the research piece? We'll save we'll save some money." I was like, "This is not going to work out." Right. So I really love that your proposal has nothing about line items. Like nobody knows exactly what a certain thing costs. They just know, you know, you're going to get this stuff, and here's the you know, the value and the outcome.
0: Yeah, it's right. And, and when people are trying to justify a fee, like they're trying to increase a fee or maximize a fee on a particular uh, proposal, and they're trying to justify it by saying, but look how hard I'm going to work. That's, it's an it, obvious indicator that they're still thinking about their pricing in a cost first way, instead of a value first way. And, you know, they're like, geez, I can't, I can't imagine someone ever paying me $10,000. I I need to like load a bunch of labor in here to justify that amount of money. And it's just, it's just backwards. Like no one cares how the sausage gets made. No. You know, they don't, it doesn't, I don't care how hard it was. It doesn't change the value. It might, you know, for a cheapo, it might justify something, but it's just backwards thinking. It's normal. It's the way most people start out thinking. I certainly did. Yeah. but it, it's backwards from what you want. You want to flip it around and start with the value and then scope last. So if the value to somebody is only $10,000, you can't charge them a hundred. So, all right, but what can you charge them? You can a yeah, hundred thousand. I mean, if, if it's, if the value to them is $10,000, you could give them a proposal for $500 and for, you know, $1,200 and for $2,500. And those are all prices that are lower than the value. But then you say to yourself, well, what can I do for $500 that I want to do? And you come up with a scope that you would do for $500. And, you know, maybe that's one article. Maybe that is a, f- a license to use your course internally. Like what, it's like you get creative about the scope after you determine the value and set some prices. And that's, that's the way to think about it. But I, I recognize that that's a 180 degree flip from how people generally start out.
1: Yeah. And the mindset thing is so huge too. I actually just released an episode of my podcast uh, this week, uh, last week, Monday, last week. And I was interviewing this woman who's really brilliant um, with content. And she, five years ago, was working at a content mill writing. And she was, she came from Nigeria. She grew up in extreme poverty and she was writing 80,000 words to a hundred thousand words a month for $500. And, you know, something we talked about is how important it is to overcome a poverty mindset, especially for anyone who grew up with nothing. Like she said, I grew up with nothing. Imagine like your life in America being poor, take all of that away and imagine the worst possible thing. That's my life. I grew up with literally nothing. So she really, really has, rewired her mindset to, to think, I can charge this. I am as good as anyone else. I am worthy. Um, so it's a really good episode for anyone who might be listening that has any of those issues they, they wanna uh, learn from her. She's amazing.
0: That sounds great. All right, I'll definitely link to that in the show notes. Um, okay, let's pivot a tiny bit away from the proposal itself and back to something that you started with, which was the, the amount of inbound interest that you get. And maybe we can kind of wrap up on that, but, sure. but that is a key piece, in my opinion, to some of the, like the numbers that you're talking about, like your close rate being hundred percent and the fact that you're only accepting one out of 10 hand raisers. So what, I mean, maybe you can, or you could disabuse me of that notion. You could say, oh no, that's not that important. Um, so maybe a little bit about how important it is to you to get inbound and, and how you got there, where you started and how you got to that level of flow.
1: To me, it's everything. It's so, so important. Like the example that I shared from my last day job, uh, you know, by driving those inbound leads, we're able to increase the close rate to, I think, 40%. I got to wish I had the numbers in front of me. I don't remember anymore, but it was significant, really, really significant. And think about it. How many of you get approached by get cold emails from these lead gen agencies, like, oh, we're gonna give you all these leads, all these leads. Imagine if I was to use that, they call it the spray and pray approach. It's kind of like, (laughs) you're gonna send the same generic vanilla email. I'm not gonna take a second to research you because how can you, if you're trying to reach out to a thousand people, you're just gonna spray and pray like, hi. I mean, I get like 10 of these a day, like, hi, I'm so-and-so. I write blog posts, like, why don't you hire me? And that's what a lot of people do. And it's like, no wonder why you end up competing on price and not competing on value. If you could communicate to your target audience the value that you create through knowledge sharing and sharing of your personality, because you're not going to be a fit for everyone, but you're going to attract certain clients who appreciate, you know, they might appreciate how you're just like really pragmatic. You tell it as it is. And some clients really appreciate that. So just by being yourself and by sharing your knowledge and on occasion sharing results, you can really start to see people raise their hand to want to work with you. And then it's less of a barrier. It's less like, hi, I'm so-and-so. I want you to hire me. I'll be so amazing. And you're like, I don't know if I need this. I don't know you from a hole in the wall. And you're, you're at the disadvantage in the bargaining table because you're almost like convincing and putting on a you know dog and pony show and doing your dance and trying to sell them on the fact that they should read your email and they should get on a call with you. And that's not a great place to start from. Wouldn't you rather start from a place where they're hey, I want to send you an email. Hey, I want to get on a call with you. It completely changes the bargaining table and it puts you at the advantage where you're not just taking their budget and saying, yes, please. You're actually the one who's setting the the fees and then they can either take it or leave it. It's an entirely different world and, and so it takes what, time to get there.
0: Yeah, exactly. But Aaron, that's so much work. I haven't got time for that. I barely I'm barely getting by with 50 hours a week of client work.
1: I get that. I get that. I would say something that we discussed too in the last episode is it's really hard to say no to work. Well, there's a few different things to unpack here. First, let's say you are so busy doing 50 hours of client work because all the work that you have right now is low paying work and you're just trying to put food on the table. It's really hard to say no when you're hungry. You don't want your lights to get shut off. You know, your kids need new clothes. My kids are always growing. Like, so how do you say no to shitty paying work? You don't, you take it and you're in this endless rat race, this endless hamster wheel. So the best thing to do is to get some sort of second income stream, that allows you to say no to the lowest paying work let's say i'm a writer and right now a lot of writers actually don't even charge by the hour they charge by the word still so let's say i'm a writer and i'm working 50 hours a week and i'm writing for three cents a word and i have no free time oh i cannot do this i have no free time well imagine if you know while your, your kids are in bed at night, you start going through your closet and selling your old clothes on Poshmark and eBay. And you have this now little trickle of second income stream so that that's the equivalent of 10 hours of, of your writing work. So now when these shitty low-paying clients are trying to you know lowball you, you can just say, oh no, actually my rate is 10 cents a word. And you might get a lot of no's, but you might get your first yes. And now guess what? Going forward, you know, that you can command 10 cents a word, not saying to charge by the word, just trying to put this into kind of black and white terms. Right, right. So then you're like, wow, I can actually, then you start to get that mindset. Like, wow, I, I can earn more. I can do this. And now that you're earning you know, more, now the next time that you know you can, you might say to your clients, hey, everyone, you know, it's the new year. I'm gonna raise my rates. As of effective January 3rd, my new rate is X. And some of them might say, oh, I don't wanna pay that. You're like, okay, cool. That's fine because I don't need to do as much work if I'm getting more money from the work I am doing. I can work less hours and make the same. And it kind of goes from there and you start to replace your low paying clients with your higher paying clients one by one until you no longer need that second income stream. And the next thing you know, you're working the same or hopefully less hours and making more than you ever were before.
0: Yeah, it's like the old joke. I told my barber, you should double his prices. He said, double my prices. I'll lose half my business.
1: Yeah, it doesn't make any sense, does it?
0: Right. It's like, it's like, yeah, you'd be working half the time servicing half the people making the same money. It's like you double your profitability. Right. So, yeah. And even in the example you use, obviously I'm anti by the word either, but if you switch from three cents a word to a client that had, that was paying you 10 cents a word, that's like three clients right there. It's yep. like get three bad clients in one. So that would in theory decrease your workload by 60, like 66% or whatever it is. Right. Cool. All right. So I could probably talk all day about this stuff, but we should probably (laughs) wrap up. So, uh, this has been fabulous. I really appreciate you taking the time. I appreciate you sharing the proposal with your list. I hope more people actually use it and sort of incorporate some of the other ideas we're talking about here to make it more effective for them. Um, where can people go to find out more about what you're doing online?
1: Yeah. So they can go to LinkedIn. I'm ErinBalsa.com. E-R-I-N-B-A-L-S-A. I'm actually the only Erin Balsa on LinkedIn. I'm very lucky that I married wow. a guy with a sort of a, an unusual last name. Yeah. Um, I also have, as I've mentioned, a podcast and a newsletter. You can sign up for both of those on my website which is houseofbold.com and it's spelled house h-a-u-s of bold b-o-l-d
0: if nothing else go there for the animated eyeball which is yeah it
1: follows you around it's better on desktop than mobile but either way it does follow you around
0: yeah it's so cool thanks all right folks that's it for this week i'm jonathan stark and i hope you join me again next time on ditching hourly bye hey jonathan again do you have questions about how to improve your business